Hi listeners, welcome to the All Swell podcast, a student podcast led by the Coastal Society. My name is Genevieve Gary and I am a PhD researcher at East Carolina University. First, I want to thank everyone that reached out to Kira and I after we released our podcast on our late friend Anya. We deeply appreciate the kind words and support we have seen from so many other coastal communities and friends. This podcast today will be featuring an issue near and dear to my heart, chemical contamination, specifically from a chemical class known as perin-polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. And there are tens of thousands of chemicals that fit within this class, and they are defined this way because they are hard to break down over time and were created to be oil and water resistant. They have been around since World War II when they were maybe accidentally created during the Manhattan Project. And I am a North Carolina native who has lived in Fayetteville and Wilmington, and these are two key communities that have had their drinking water contaminated for decades by these chemicals. However, before we get started, I want to pose a question to our listeners. I want y'all to think about your morning routine. Do you think about where every aspect of your routine comes from? Do you think about the water you brush your teeth with? Do you think about the pots and pans that you cook on and what food you may grab from your pantry or fridge? And with that, when you go to grab a glass of water, do you think every time about what's in your water and if it's safe to drink? I mention this because PFAS have been found in so many consumer goods including cookware, waterproof clothing, fast food wrappers, microwave popcorn, floss, carpet and rugs, cosmetics. They're starting to be found in food such as lettuce, cow's milk, deer, fish and shellfish. They're also found in occupational places such as firefighting foam, firefighting gear, jet fuel, ski wax, I recently even learned about a couple more places such as contacts and swimsuits. And this is just a short list to highlight how prevalent these chemicals are and how you can come into contact with them multiple times a day. This month, Wilmington, North Carolina hosted the third annual PFAS meeting, a three-day event that brought speakers, researchers, and concerned community members from across the country to discuss PFAS. And I want to make something really clear. PFAS are a coastal issue. So many communities that are currently contaminated due to being adjacent to an industry or Department of Defense base, such as an old Air Force base or even a currently active one, are all very close to the coast. And because PFAS do not break down in the environment, they have reached the ocean and even been found in the Arctic. Now, why are these chemicals so bad? So PFAS are linked to adverse health effects such as increased cholesterol levels, decreased response to vaccines, changes in liver enzymes, increases um, the risk of cancers such as kidney and testicular, and there's several issues with pregnancy. Researchers are working hard to learn more about these health effects, especially on the immune system. So up next, we are going to hear from two North Carolina student researchers whose work focus on the health effects of PFAS, and we're going to discuss all the information that we heard at the conference. Hi, y'all. We're sitting during lunch break during the third annual PFAS conference in Wilmington, North Carolina. I am sitting with two other North Carolina student researchers that share the pleasure of working on PFAS as well. 
Crystal and Ashley, I will have y'all introduce yourselves, um, what school and lab you represent, and how'd you get to North Carolina, and how'd you get to working on PFAS? I am Ashley Connors. I am the, in the lab of Dr. Jeffrey Yoder at North Carolina State University, um, and my lab is part of NC State's Superfund project. My lab focuses on how PFAS affects the innate immune system, and I say innate because we have another immunotoxicologist here who is focusing on another part of the immune system. So my part of the immune, the innate immune system is kind of like your first line of defense when you first get exposed to a virus or a bacteria or other pathogen. And in this case, in the, contain yeah. it. And in my particular <laughs> case, I study an immune cell called macrophages. These kind of look like amoebas, which you might remember from high school biology but their main job is to go around the body like consuming and neutralizing and destroying bacteria, viruses, any other pathogens, and also cancer cells. Um, your immune system is really important in fending off cancer. And how did you get to your lab in North Carolina? Where were you at before? So before I came to North Carolina, I was at Oregon Health Sciences University doing neuroendocrinology research, like looking at how hormones act in the brain. Um, but while I was there, I realized I would rather be doing environmental toxicology. And so I looked at schools all across the nation, and I settled on NC State for a variety of reasons. But um, once I came here, I decided to I really wanted to work with Dr. Jeffrey Yoder, who happened to be working on PFAS. Like I didn't come here specifically for the PFAS. But that was like the chemical contaminant that was calling to me most because I'm really interested in like industrial pollution and the environment and how that's affecting both human and wildlife health. Awesome. And what about you, Crystal? Hello, hello. My name is Crystal Taylor. I am in Dr. Jamie Dewitt's lab. I'm at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina in the graduate program. I know it's a whole mouthful. Always, always. <laughs> um, our lab is focusing on immunotox um, immunotoxicology, and more specifically, we're working with the adaptive immune system. So my uh, specialty is B cells. So we're looking at B cells and how they are important in producing antibodies. So we're looking to see how PFAS is going to affect production. Are we going to get an increase or are we going to get a decrease? So that's what my lab is looking at. Now, how I got into um, immunotoxins, very interesting. I had no idea what toxicology was. The only thing I knew about toxicology, when you hear someone say a celebrity has passed and they want to see the tox report, that's, a, that's how I knew about toxicology. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very unconventional, but um, before I got to the lab, I was actually teaching um, at a local community college, and my love for science just led me over um, to ECU and doing different rotations in my program and I stumbled across toxicology and I was like okay the immune system plus toxicants like this is pretty cool so it put together two worlds that I didn't even know could mix and so I am loving every bit of it that's awesome and uh, y'all are presenting some work here so could you each maybe uh, talk a little bit more specifically um, about the abstracts you're presenting here today so I guess I go. Yeah, yeah Crystal. <laughs> so what I did is we tested uh, two chemicals um, so far. We did PFOA, which is a well-tested and well-known um, PFAS. And so we looked to see how um, the development of B cells, because you just don't become a B cell, you start off as a stem cell and you kind of develop along the way. 
And so we wanted to see if any of the development was impaired by the chemical. And so we did that one and we did a, another one called PFHXA, which is less known. And that's one of the things we're focusing on is making sure that we gather a body of research that represents so many of the different 12,000 chemicals of PFAS that we know have been identified. And so we did see some very interesting results. We did see some decreases in the number of plasma cells and some of the memory cells. And the memory cells are important because that's what pretty much takes a picture of whatever's going on in the body. So if a pathogen, like Ashley said before, comes around, it has a snapshot and says, oh, I know how to defeat you. So if we have a decrease in those or a decrease in the production of antibodies, that suppresses um, our immune system. So that pretty much sums up the abstract. Awesome. And uh, what would you like to contribute, Ashley? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the work I'm presenting today is it's still in its early phases. I just finished the second year of my PhD program. But so it's we're, I'm looking at how P, 10 different PFAS, um, including big big names like PFOS and PFOA, but also some of the more up-and-coming ones like Napium Byproduct 2 and PFMOAA. Um, all 10 of these have been found in the Cape Fear region, whether in groundwater, surface water, or in people. Um, and like these 10 are still only like a small fraction of all the ones out there, but we're hoping to get a little more structural diversity into the data sets that exist on immune toxicity. And so I'm studying how these 10 PFAS affect macrophage function. So first what I did was do like, do these chemicals directly kill the macrophages? Um, and I'm using a immortalized cell line to do so. So it's like, um, they are human cells, but they are not fully human in a way because we've genetically changed them to make them immortal. But we do see some of these PFAS do affect macrophage viability at really high doses. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is I'm exposing these cells for two days. A lot of people have been exposed for decades and decades. Um, and so the four that do affect viability that I've seen are Napium Byproduct 2, PFOS, PFNA, and PFDA. Um, and then the next phase is, I mentioned earlier that macrophages go around consuming pathogens. You can kind of think of them as like Pac-Man around the screen. <laughs> I know, that's a great analogy. That's what I think it is. It's like just going in my bloodstream, like yeah. nom nom. Let's <laughs> um, kind of do like an individual macrophage can like tackle like 50 to 100 bacteria based on like in vitro studies that people have done. Um, and so I don't, I haven't tested PFAS exposures yet, but I do have the assay up and running now so that we can test how well macrophages are able to do that job to um, consume and destroy bacteria um, when exposed to PFAS. That's awesome. And I love how y'all have been discussing how, you know, you know, you guys are kind of working at like a cellular level, but you are already as scientists relating it to what people are going through today. And, you know, we're sitting in a contaminated area. We're literally sitting behind my old apartment where I probably myself was contaminated and found out that um, the new fun term of the chemical that was in the river here was called Gen X. And so a lot of times you'll hear people talk about Gen X and you're like, oh, is it one of those like TikTok YouTuber like trends? Nope, it's uh, it's a chemical. Yeah, when, a lot of um, people hear Gen X and think Generation X. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Totally we're like, it, we're like, actually, this is a much more terrifying um, thing of it. And so what brought y'all to, I mean, obviously you guys presented the work and you're here at the conference, but what's something y'all wanted to get out of the conference? Um, you know, either from other speakers or was it a more research collapse? Like, what was something you were looking forward to by coming here today? 
Um, I was very excited when um, Dr. Jamie DeWitt told me about the conference because she said it's going to be unlike any conference you've been to. Most of the conferences we go to are very science heavy and it's just a bunch of us scientists kind of sharing our information together and it's only in your little small subset. Well, this conference is different because we have advocates, we have people who are actually living in the communities who are speaking about how important our work is and how it's helping to push the narrative forward of how toxic these chemicals really are. And just to hear how passionate they are about protecting not only their families, but their communities. And it's not just one person kind of yelling from a soapbox. It's a gathered community. And you see the community and how they are supporting each other. Like, this is what we did in our state. This is what we did um, in our community. And I think probably one of the best moments I've had here so far is... Um, a woman from a local community that's impacted she said thank you for doing your research she was like this is very impactful on decisions that me and my family were making and that was very touching because you don't often hear that in your normal science meetings it's usually a totally different um conversation more you can improve your experiment by adding this mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. or this but someone who was saying i see your research and thank you for um addressing the problem in our community that yeah. was very rewarding i see you you know, it's uh, just, exactly. just like when when are you going to get this paper done? When are you going to publish? When are you going to when are you going to graduate? It's, Absolutely. It's, thank you for like who you are today, which is so refreshing because I think as students, like we get in this mode and we're just like trying to keep checking off boxes of our work. And then we're in this kind of academic setting where we're already having that imposter syndrome of someone's already ahead of me. But then when you come here and, and see somebody like get teary eyed thanking you in a room of hundreds and mean it, it's, it, yeah, it's very nice and definitely is a driver. Absolutely. It makes you want to go like go back into the lab, like, what can I do next to help? Because I can actually see that my research is helping and causing them to ask even more questions. So that was very refreshing. Yeah. And what about you, Ashley? What was something you were really excited to gain from this experience? I was definitely really excited to hear from community members because like, like Crystal said, that's one thing that's often missing from scientific conferences. You just have talking to other scientists and like some of them might work with communities, but like you don't have communities there like saying like, here's what we want from scientists. Here's what we need to know. Because when the Gen X story broke five years ago, like people's first question is like, is this Gen X in me? And then the second question is, if it is, what does that mean for my health? Yeah. And like our research alone can't like answer that question, but as more researchers do studies that kind of look at different health endpoints, like collectively we can say like we can put this body of research together, get that weight of evidence to say, yes, like we can show that these chemicals are suppressing the immune system in some cases. And for some people they might be triggering their autoimmune disorders or like leading to their cancer. Um, and so like just being around these community members who like are dealing with this like I have a contaminated body what does this mean for my longevity like it is a very like anxiety inducing thing yeah. um and like as I've been here I've been reflecting on the fact that like I knew I probably was exposed to PFAS but like I'm connecting the dots of like where I've been and where my parents were because like one of the researchers today was like so, like some studies suggest that a mother can pass like up to 40% of her body burden to her children. And so it's like thinking, knowing where my parents have been, it's like, yeah, I probably have a pretty good dose myself. Yeah. Um, and so like in a way, like being around these community members, like so you realize like this is not just in a lab. And like I knew that abstractly, but it's like kind of more real now, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Um, it's yeah. like, this is why these problems matter. This is why they're urgent. Yeah, I agree. And sitting here and then, you know, thinking about so the chemical that was distributed in the area region that we're sitting in right now was upriver um, in a town called uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is home to Fort Bragg, where a lot of military Mm -hmm. is based out of. and, And that's where I was born. And to sit and now hear all these other military families and spouses from all over and then, and then you know it's not just the military spouses. And then you hear people from like up in New York, and they're talking about that they, <laughs> excuse me, uh, you know that they bought their dream house, and they thought they finally had worked up and lived and gotten that home, and then they didn't know for for years. And then all of these people around them are getting cancer. And I think we, we literally just came out of the cancer session, so excuse us if we're really getting heavy on this topic already. But, you know, we heard a community member asked, how many studies, how many studies does it take for a federal agency to, to start making action? And that's so applicable to not just PFAS, but some other pollutants that we have in this country and, and uh, how we're working and dealing with climate change. Um, and so to get kind of back on PFAS um, for y'all, what advice would you give to somebody who's concerned about their PFAS exposure? There are so many different <laughs> yeah. things. Um, we often get questions about what should we do, especially when we're talking about water. Um, one of the things I've seen, and they've done a great job of that here um, at this conference, is the bottled water that you can get make sure that it has been processed. It'll have a label that says reverse osmosis. So we've seen that. And so that's something very tangible that you can do quickly. Um, Something more extensive, it is much more expensive. Um, If you live in an area, there's something called a reverse osmosis machine to place in your house but my goodness it is it is very expensive i want to say it's about ten thousand dollars yeah whole house i think is around that Uh, under under one sink i think is at least two thousand because my mom was looking at it the other day so not not it's it's not it's not feasible to tell a family um that you need to get one of these under each sink to make sure that your house is your house is going to be okay and that your water is going to, you know your exposure is going to be very limited and then i always question even if we do that what are we doing with the runoff from it yeah are we you know perpetuating the same thing are we putting it right back in the environment yeah where is it i mean the trash has to get taken out Absolutely. where is it going to go and what communities are going to be next to that trash yeah who's Absolutely. downstream always who's who's downstream and that's why you know you know this is a coastal podcast but we are talking about PFAS which is is which is a huge coastal issue and PFAS is a global issue but uh, the coastal communities are burdened by a lot of other things and I think as North Carolina students we're kind of aware of that I mean we are always prepped and getting ready for for hurricanes and yeah to go back to your point that you know, you could do the bottled water, but then we might have to worry, you know, you've got a lot, what about the microplastics? Absolutely. And then, and then it's, if it's not something else, and then, you know, we all have been around now where it was like, we, you see the majority people now with metal stainless steel water bottles, because everybody used to have those plastic ones, but those had uh, BPA in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and no one, we didn't really know what BPA is, but we knew not to, not to have it. Um, and so was there... Was there any moment for y'all personally, like some news where you were like, I am not 
you know, I'm, I am not drinking the water here because I know that there's PFAS in it or I'm not cooking on this pan because it's got PFOA in it. Was there any like aha moment for either one of you? So I've been interested in public health from like a young age. I think I'm like, I've been thinking about this like since you um, asked the question yesterday and like my family stopped buying microwave popcorn because I think I read in, I, th I think it was Time Magazine that had an article about like Teflon being lined up um, Teflon you can use to line like microwave popcorn bags and I was like isn't that the same stuff they use in like bulletproof gear and I'm like okay probably that's pot and safe to ingest and so like my family actually switched to making stuff pop popcorn which is way better if you haven't tried it try and make it on a stove yeah um, <laughs> I no, totally agree with that popcorn and face. so like this is like way way like before I even knew what PFAS was I just knew like Teflon as like the brand name and so I was probably, like, I don't know, I was in middle school, I think, at that time. Yeah. Oh and, my gosh. and to this day, like, I've gotten microwave um, popcorn in, like, little goodie bags from people, and they just sit in my closet. I don't eat them. Like, I don't want to throw them away because it's still food, but, like... I know. You're like, what? I just make it on the stove, and, like, hopefully I can find somewhere that sells, like, you know, the kernels by themselves, which... Those are hard to find sometimes because, like, so many people eat microwave popcorn and they don't make it on the stove. That's that's fair, yeah. and that's an exposure. If yeah. you have that daily, and then you're if your drinking water is contaminated, and then if you eat fast food, which is a whole other issue and another kind of coastal problem. And this isn't just coastal, but in Wilmington, it is that you know I'm, we're sitting in a food desert right now. And for those of you that don't know what a food desert is, that means that people don't have access to a grocery store and that they may not even have public transportation if it's not in walking distance. They have no way of getting to what we would have it for, for nutrients on a day-to-day on a -day basis. So there, and apparently to some organizations, sometimes a, a dollar general counts, but as we all know, dollar general isn't a fully a grocery store. And so people might have to go to fast food and then they're eating it, you know, on their their wrapper for their um, hamburger or something. Absolutely, and I've heard that the constant conversation about food deserts. And I read an article not too long ago, and they were actually changing the wording to food apartheid because they were saying these areas, these major chains, are choosing not to come into these communities. And these communities are—you hate to say—everyone's worthy of having good food. It shouldn't be something that is just privileged to one area and to talk about the fast food you know it's quick it's easy and um you know i can feed a family um, pretty cheaply and so it's always a uh, very easy to grab and then the benefit of not having the greasiness on your hand from a burger wrapper or french fries but like ashley said when you cook at home it's so much better um thinking about the popcorn and to your um, other question about a product or anything that made us kind of step back, and I was talking to Ashley about this last night, there's this new brand of um, menstruating underwear that I thought was going to be absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Like, oh my goodness. And if those of you who aren't uh, familiar, it's underwear where you don't have to use any type of protection. So you don't have to use tampons, you don't have to use pads. And I was like, oh, this, this is going to be game changing for every woman. And I remember looking at it and about to purchase and an article popped up and it was saying that 
it was contaminated. They're contaminated with PFAS. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I remember seeing that and then thinking, oh, this might be a great option to give it like women's shelters or right. people that don't have access all the time to, to being able to buy feminine care products. And then, yeah, I think Jamie was like, nope, there's PFAS in that. I mean, that's just you have to go down the list of like, then there's PFAS in that. And the, even in our cosmetic care. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Like somebody said yesterday, they're like, why is this chemical on my, like, floss for my It helps teeth? it glide. That's yeah. why. Floss, lipstick, um, you think about concealer, foundation. It's like all of it so it can glide very yeah. smoothly. Yes. Waterproof. I mean, that's the, that's the issue is that we all kind of want waterproof mm-hmm. in our lives. And then, but that means we're going to have PFAS. And as an outdoor person, and I mean, I know that marine scientists can like attest to this. I mean, you want that waterproof jacket. You want the boots that your feet are going to be dry all day if it's raining. But what happens with that jacket if it rips or it, you know, goes? I mean, I recently saw that Patagonia is going to phase out PFAS, but what are they replacing it with? So you kind of brought that up, Ashley. Can you all kind of speak on that about like, is the worry now that they're going to replace it with something worse or is it going to maybe get replaced with something better? Yeah, there is a long history of um, regrettable replacements is one phrase I've heard for it. Um, And that's why we have this Gen X issue. Like originally, Gen X was supposed to replace PFOA as a safer alternative. But the catch is it was only thought to be safer because there weren't toxicity studies on it. And this is like where we need to like adopt more of the precautionary principle. It's like, let's not assume something is safe until we actually test it side by side of the thing we're trying to use it to replace. Um, And so like there may be safer PFAS out there, but we need to do thorough toxicity studies on all these endpoints that people have been talking about at the conference and be like, is it actually safer? Before we just swap it out and then we're like, oh, that one might actually be worse. Yeah, and they've a lot of them have been talking about, I mean, the long chain and the short chain. And for listeners, that means, um, you know, these chemicals have a lot of carbon um, on it. And so that's what they're referring to. Does it have more, you know, carbon chains or like a longer uh, carbon chain? And yes. And, and as even as I'm like sitting here and I'm like, okay, I'm a person that's been contaminated. I'm in academia and still trying to keep up with some of this stuff is really difficult yeah it's ever-changing like we have 12,000 that have been identified and who knows how many more there are but we have to make sure that we have the technology that we can actually screen and that's where we're finding a lot of the hiccups at sometimes we just don't have the technology to figure out if this is an eight carbon or if this is a three carbon or four and how like Ashley said is this really toxic have we done the research have we done the work behind it Yeah. And what for, you know, obviously, you know, we're researchers, we're up to date. I mean, we kind of pay attention to all of the, you know, journals and stuff. Is there any other like social media form that y'all use to stay up to date on PFAS news? Like, yeah, so I'm on Twitter and not all PFAS researchers are on Twitter, but there's enough that I can get kind of the lay of the land. Um, I actually made a Twitter list for myself of like all the PFAS researchers that researchers that are on Twitter. But besides that, I, do, I use Google Scholar Alerts a lot and just kind of like try to look at journal headlines every so often. Um, but definitely coming to conferences like this, whereas like researchers from 
all sorts of feedback going from toxicity to like remediation to like what's even out there um, is definitely helpful for kind of staying up to date on that. I think being part of the Superfund research group, they send out um, a lot of information about um, new topics that are coming out, um, new articles and new journals. And so that has helped. And I also have Google Scholar Alert. And anything that you search, usually because all of my searches are PFAS, they will go, hey, this is something you may find interesting. So that keeps me up to date as well. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's difficult. There's so much information out there. And I ask as as kind of a a concerned citizen, you know, like where can I find this and and who do I trust, you know, what information because there's so much out there. And and hearing the testimonies of a lot of people at this conference being like, I made myself, like I taught myself how to do this. And the women talking about going forward with either having a child or in, and what they do with, with breast milk as well was I thought was just you know, every person had to make their own decision at the end of the day. That's that's what it comes out down to. Like, yes, it's the community story, but every family is is different within that community. Um, and so what is what's like the biggest takeaway? I know we're only a day and a half into the conference, but so far, what is the biggest takeaway that you would give to the listeners um, about this conference? Um, the biggest takeaway, I would say, there is power in advocacy. So the science has been amazing as everyone has presented, but just to see how these community um, participants have really pushed their story and their narrative forward, I think that has been the most impressive that I have seen, just the way that they are conducting their own studies or trying to find out clusters in their area. And a lot of them have no science background, but they had a passion and a determination of public health of wanting to help not only their family, but communities around them. I just would say advocacy is a very powerful thing. And I am so happy to be here to actually witness that and see it in fruition. I completely agree. Um, as a journalist pointed out yesterday, the news about Gen X being in Cape Fear was actually released as a scientific article like either late 2016 or early 2017, but it wasn't until a journalist helped get that news to the public and the public, they reacted and they reacted strongly. So um, and that's when like it became a priority for both local and state governments was because the people knew and like community members knew now and they were they had a problem they had feelings like we're like we this, this needs this needs to change yeah we need more community based research Absolutely. Or, you know oh, for we, sure. and for i sure. yeah and i know it can be so difficult at time cuz we got i mean y'all are in labs and you know and we're coming to finally being able to do everything kind of in person now but i just I think that's something so important and I love seeing in other, in other fellow researchers is that y'all really care about getting that information out to, to communities. You know, you might just be working on one cell, but y'all are already seeing how it fits in the bigger picture of everything and not just like the health stuff. Like, you know, we've kind of touched on cultural differences, economic differences, you know, uh, during this talk. And so it's, it's great to hear y'all say that and just kind of to wrap up today you know we have a motto here at all swell called there's where there's a will there's a wave and so what is your wave that just keeps you going 
<laughs> no pressure. Yeah. Um, oh. Ashley, do you have a thought right now? I'm still thinking. No, um, I do want, before I, I talk about, um, answer your question, I do want to hop back to what Crystal was saying earlier about filters, is um, something that some researchers at, researchers at UNC have said that I think is like really good to keep in mind is but when it comes to PFAS, some filters are better than others, but usually any filter is better than no filter. And that's so, great advice. I think that's definitely something we can leave yeah. with our listeners that a Brita, even a Brita filter um, will, help will help you and they will help with other contaminants if you Absolutely. are someone listening yeah. that so maybe. like RO is definitely the best. Um, yeah. But so Detlef Navi's group at NC State has done some work on the different types of filters. And I think that paper is out if you want to go find it. But from what they said, like the under sink RO filters are more effective than the whole house ones. And if the whole house ones, you kind of run into the risk of since there's not chlorine in your water anymore to keep the pathogens at bay, you could get mold in your pipes if you have a whole house RO filter, Ooh. which is a whole nother house problem that yeah. none of us want. Yeah, we won't touch that right um, now. But yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like there's definitely good filter options out there. Some of them are more expensive than others. But the EPA did just announce that billion dollars community grant, so hopefully there'll be more money filtering down to communities that need it to get good, clean PFAS three water. Yes. Yeah. So at the end of the day, that's all you know. We're at there. You know, we had um, uh, attorney from the Southern Environmental Law Center yesterday, and he was like, "This is in the Clean Water Act. We it is written in our law." about what to discharge into the water. Yeah, it's like we don't need new laws, we just need to enforce to existing laws. And I think that's very powerful. Yep. And I hope the community advocates heard it as well as like the researchers themselves. Like, Yeah, I, I really do think there's power in actually going in and, and reading the laws that are written, not just like the basic definition of what the Clean Water Act is, but some of these statutes and the stuff. I mean. It, it does go to parts of our government in the U.S. Like, you do have a right to clean water and air in this country. Every single person does. Um, and that that's my wave to be to be fighting for. We, we all deserve that. And on my note, hearing other military um, spouses and families talk about that today and talking about how, you know, you go and serve your country and your family, you are sick and your communities around you are contaminated, that is a driving force for me for continuing on in this PFAS work. For me, it's like what I've heard from few members repeatedly is they want to know what the health effects are. And so my lab is working on a review paper for how PFAS affect the innate immune system. And one thing I was saying is like, we, we have a very piecemeal data set when it comes to PFAS and the innate immune system. And most of the data there is for the big two PFAS, PFOS and PFOA. But like just seeing the absolute like there is not a lot of data for other PFAS. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people are being exposed to now. It's like there's very few studies on genetics in the innate immune system. And so knowing that there's that data gap there, that community members want to know, like how is being exposed to GenX or any of its alternatives can affect my immune system? It's like, we need to generate that data. And so that's part of what's been motivating me over these past few months, is seeking to fill those data gaps that community members want to know. Awesome. 
I think what motivates me, um, one, environmental justice. I am yes. born. <laughs> I was born and raised by the birthplace of uh, environmental justice not too far away. Um, I'm from Henderson, North Carolina, but Warrington, North Carolina wow. is actually the birthplace. And they are coming up on their 40th year and how the community was activated there. I think um, what keeps me going in PFAS is um, one of the panel people and one of the um community members ask like what can we do what can we do about our children and that's one of the things I'm looking at in my research like what is something tangible I can do rather than to say I just need to move because that's not solving the problem and that's not fiscally responsible for a lot of families it's not even an option but can I take something or do something dietary that's going to help uh, my immune system to give my vaccine response a fighting chance to make sure that my child um, vaccine stays as robust um, and gives the immune system a, a robust change to respond to any pathogen. So it's making sure that environmental justice stays on the forefront and that we try to give them some solutions that are very tangible. Yeah, I, I think that w that's a great place for kind of us to wrap up today, but that was the beginning and that's what we opened this conference with was talking about environmental justice. Yes. And I like, you know, one of the ladies says, you know, really that opening up our hearts and, and hearing the stories of the people and, and using that as a motivator to like you all are doing, finding some of these gaps, trying to find the one a piece of the puzzle of mm. what the health effects might be of these chemicals. Cause it does have like so much more of a greater impact. And and especially, you know, here for some of our coastal communities that this is another issue that we are going up against. And that to at least we know there's some people that they are they are working for this might not feel like it all the time when you hear this it's, you know you're looking at the news but there's a lot of people behind the scenes um, so would y'all like to say anything else or you know let any anything else you want to say on PFAS <laughs> jumping off of what Crystal said about being healthy like we've had several physicians speak at this conference and they said like even if you can't do anything about your PFAS levels you do have like the ability to help yourself be the healthiest you can be, eating right, getting exercise, like getting your preventative care. Um, so doing all that will help reduce the impact that PFAS has on you, even if you can't do anything about your PFAS levels. Just being your healthiest self if possible, which I realize is not as easy for some as others, but to the extent that you have the power, yeah. do what you can for yourself. Take care of yourself. I, I agree exactly what Ashley said. And then just to remember that you have, there's power and advocacy and don't think that your voice won't make a difference because all of these people here started here just with being like the squeaky wheel and we see how things and legislation has been pushed just because of them being a speaky wheel. So speak out. Uh, Twitter has been where a lot of people have gone to to express their views and they're connecting with a lot of people and making some changes. Yeah, these changes are are definitely I think a lot of the credit should go to the community advocates like we're providing some of the science but they're the ones doing the work and getting it into policy yes. yeah I agree and, and it's not a it's not a nine to five job no it's <laughs> it's 20 it's 24 7 for them and and he and they're still here like 20 30 years later you know still coming and, and still just they won't but they just really want a um they just want to really share their story 
And so we are really grateful to everybody listening to this podcast today just to hear a little bit about PFAS. And I will link everything for Twitter for if anybody wants to find out so you guys can find Ashley and Crystal if you guys have any more questions or want to know anything more about their research. But uh, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that's a lot to cover for one episode. Thanks again for listening this week. I want to thank Ashley and Crystal for coming on and sharing their knowledge and discussing the conference with me. Thank you to all the organizations, especially NC State, for organizing the conference and Cape Fear Community College for hosting it. Most importantly, though, I want to take a moment um, and thank the community members and the PFAS Coalition. I know, and I speak for others when I say, I would not be here without you. Thank you for taking the time to share your stories and endless hours y'all have spent to ensure that we have clean air and water. I want to specifically give a shout out to Tony Spinanola from the Great Lakes PFAS Action Network, who said in one of our last panels that it's not about you, it's about the people. As a student researcher in this subject, these words have never been more prevalent. Our work in environmental issues are for the people. If you have any more questions about PFAS, please feel free to reach out to me, Ashley, or Crystal. I know we have just scratched the surface of this subject, um, and it's really a lot to take in at once if this is the first time you're hearing about the issue. I have linked um, resources and where you can be able to reach out to any one of us in the podcast description. I'd like to leave y'all with one last quote from someone that inspires me endlessly, community leader Emily Donovan from Clean Cape Fear, who said this about polluters. They may have the money, but we have the people. Thank you again for listening to All Swell, and remember, where there's a will, there's a wave.